If there's no God who speaks into the world from outside, navigation of human life is similarly impossible. It is anarchy and pandemonium. With no God who speaks, no one knows where to go. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Landon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm not here with anyone this week. My regular co-hosts, Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, and I are all otherwise occupied this week. So instead of a regular podcast episode, we have another offering from the archive. Today's show is a repost of a lecture that I gave this past Sunday on Christian identity. It's actually the first session of a class I'm teaching on the biblical worldview, but it should stand on its own just fine. So for the podcast feed, we're calling it Who We Say That We Are, Identity and the Bible. Enjoy. Here we are. Let us begin with a prayer. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you to be here with us this morning as we discuss who we are in your name. And we know that you have kept your promise and are here with us. May my words now be yours. I ask you to be with me as I teach. You know my knowledge is limited and that my sins are many. We pray that you would redeem our time. We ask this in your Son, our Savior, Jesus' name. Amen. So before we dive into our topic this morning, identity in Christ, I want to share a little bit about what this class is intended to do as a whole. Um, The world outside our doors is tearing itself apart over these issues of identity, sexuality, gender roles, justice. And I have for a long time contented myself to combat those worldly misconceptions, the misconceptions about those things, by just a simple Sunday-by-Sunday proclamation of the true gospel week in and week out, trusting the Holy Spirit to build up the body of Christ in faith to be able to resist the lies that the world tells about who we are, what we should be doing with our bodies, in our homes, in our churches, and in society. And I still think that's true. The best way to prepare a Christian for the challenges that he or she will face out in the world is to bolster their faith. And the best way to bolster faith is to proclaim again and again and again and again what Jesus has done and accomplished for them by his death and resurrection. And that's what our Sunday services will be like, will remain like there. Gas stations, refueling stations for Christians whose tanks get close to empty every week. We are, after all, proclaiming Christ's finished work to a worn out world. That said, over the last couple of years, the shouting of the world about things like identity and sexuality and men and women's relationships and justice issues, this shouting has only gotten louder. And the claim that the Bible's view of these things is not only backward, but should probably be illegal, (laughs) is only continuing. A host of books and articles and discussions that I've come across over the last few years have got me thinking about doing something like this, which is a more active catechesis for the members of Christ Church on these so-called issues of the day and how a Christian with a biblically 
biblically-centered worldview should perceive them. And that's why this class has come into existence. And I'll admit, as I do every year at the beginning of this class, to some hesitance to do this, aware as I am of my own limitations in teaching on these topics. But it seems to me that the world, both the political world as well as the religious world, is not going to stop doing its own teaching on these things. And one of the reasons that people in the church can be wooed by and attracted to non-biblical ideas about these issues is that pastors, aware of their own shortcomings, decide not to say anything. And it's an intimidating thing to stand up before you and speak about something about which I fear my knowledge is limited, but it is my calling to help you prepare, to help prepare you as best I can uh, for life in this world. And I'm convinced that the truth, however imperfectly I might whisper it, communicate it, can and will drown out the lies that the world tells. Um, by way of introduction, uh, in his book called Live Not By Lies, a writer named Rod Dreher suggests that more and more churches and families are going to have to be what he calls resistance cells against the world's false teaching about identity, sexuality, justice, gender roles, etc. So what we're doing today and for the next several weeks is strengthening our resistance cell. <laughs> but more accurately, we are simply going to be proclaiming good news in the face of the world's bad news and trying to help you proclaim it within your own families and in your own lives. So before we get started specifically, a few words of orientation first. I want to admit from the start that I am only providing a very broad overview of these topics. We'll spend about 45 minutes on each of these first three when each could easily fill a semester or more of teaching time on their own. And even though we're going to spend three weeks in a couple weeks on the way men and women interact on these gender roles, we could do far more even than that. I'm doing this shortening for a couple reasons. First, as I said before, I want our focus to remain where it is. This is going to be a church defined by its preaching of the gospel in its ministry in word and sacrament to its people, its study of the scriptures, and its work to spread the good news about Jesus Christ to our city, to our country, and the world. We're going to do teaching and talking about these kinds of things and topics like them in our life together as a church, but I don't want this to be the only thing that we do. Our focus will be on proclaiming Christ's finished work, and that will be unwavering. <coughs> Second, as I also said before, there are many more thorough thinkers, wiser theologians, and superior communicators than me who have done exemplary work in these areas. It seems silly to me to try to just repackage work that they've done and communicate it to you as my own. So even as it is, I'm going to be relying overwhelmingly on the work of others as I communicate these broad overview discussions. So to fulfill out what I say here, we have a large uh, syllabus and reading list over here on the piano uh, so that you can take advantage of some of the same resources that I did as I prepared these presentations. I do encourage you to get this stuff directly from the experts. So today we're going to talk about identity 
and then a week each on sexuality and justice to be followed by three weeks on the interrelationships between men and women. And as far as questions go, we have blank question cards over there with some pens and a box to put the questions in. Um, I'm gonna, rather than taking questions at the end of each session, when we'll only have a few minutes to do so, I'd like to be able to give your questions some thought and probably honestly research that they may deserve. So I'm gonna be collecting questions throughout these weeks and then on the seventh week, I'll just do all answering questions, um, all at once, rather than trying to squeeze in just a couple questions at the end of each class, which we won't really have time for before the nursery closes. And you're also, of course, more than welcome to personally ask me any questions you might have about these or any other issues anytime. So let's talk about identity. To begin, as we always ought, let's ground ourselves in the words. I'm gonna read to you briefly from Genesis chapter one, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So as we begin to discuss identity, I want to introduce you to two words, two vocabulary terms that are going to help us do the important foundational work of distinguishing ways of knowing. For instance, In order to answer a question like, who are you? You would have to have some idea of how you would go about figuring out who you are. Where is that information? How can you access it? And the two words that will help us think about these ways of knowing are one, mimesis, M-I-M-E-S-I-S, mimesis, and two, poiesis, P-O-I, E-S-I-S, mimesis and poiesis. And here are some uh, quick and dirty definitions of those words that I'm going to borrow from Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. First, mimesis. Mimesis is the idea that the world has a given order and a given meaning that is given by someone or something outside of it. In our case, that would be God. Thus, under a mimetic view, human beings are seen as required to discover the meaning of things and conform themselves to it. So imagine walking up to a piano without ever having seen one before. A mimetic procedure would be to figure out what its given purpose would be, what its maker intended, and then to use it as its maker designed it to be used. And in such a way, you could, produ- you could produce beautiful music. By contrast, poiesis sees the world as so much raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be made by the individual. So the same piano becomes just a jumble of wood, ivory, and springs, and its function and use could be different for every person who approaches it. And you could see how 
seen in that way, beautiful music would only very rarely result. So a mimetic view sees meaning and therefore truth as something that exists empirically, something that can and should be discovered, whereas a poietic view sees meaning and therefore truth as something that a particular individual grants as he or she desires. So speaking theologically, the difference here is the difference between Genesis 1 and 2, which tell the story of God creating the world in a certain way and in a certain order with certain rules that Adam and Eve and by extension the rest of humanity are commanded to live by. It's the distinction between that, Genesis 1 and 2, and Genesis 3, in which Adam and Eve reach up and try to become the ones who give the world its meaning when they heed the serpent's lie. Did God really say? So that's the temptation, right? That is there really truth that exists outside of you? Don't you think you should be the one who decides what's true and what isn't? And ever since the serpent, humans have been tempted to reject the mimetic view of the world, that truth is given from the outside, and have been drawn toward a poietic view, the desire to give creation whatever meaning we want, outside of what God may or may not have said about it. And this connection back to the created order of Genesis 1 and 2, and then the breaking of that order in Genesis 3, is why the issue of identity is so important. And why it's not ultimately a thing about which Christians of good conscience can agree to disagree. This is not a second-tier issue like the baptism debate or orders of ministry in the church, things about which churches divide themselves but remain brothers and sisters in Christ. If we claim the ability to define who we are, then we get to define what our problems are and how we might be safe from them. So if God is not the ultimate creator and identifier, then he cannot be the savior. And therefore, if God does not speak authoritatively into the world, there can be no good news. Everything from creation to redemption becomes up to you. And so you can see how this is absolutely a first order issue. The gospel itself is at stake here. Who creates? Who identifies? And ultimately, the question of identity requires that we ask the question that's underneath every question. (laughs) Is there a God? Is there an almighty creator from outside the system who made everything? If we say no, then so be it, right? We can be whoever we say we are, live however we want to live, and nothing really means anything at all. But those waters are chaotic. In early ocean travel, ship captains could never sail out of sight of the shore. In those days, if all they could see around them was water, if there was no earthly reference point, no lighthouse or rock formation, Uh, they had no idea where they were. It wasn't until stars were understood, and the North Star in particular, that ship captains could actually sail out into the open ocean and know where they were. Navigation was actually possible because they had an external reference point, something outside the world that they knew that allowed them to stay on course. 
And similarly, if there's no God who speaks into the world from outside, navigation of human life is similarly impossible. It is anarchy and pandemonium. With no God who speaks, no one knows where to go. But if there is a God, and he has spoken, well then that changes everything. The job of the creature becomes a mimetic one, to use our vocabulary, to figure out what God has said, and then to submit oneself to it. The only other option, the one that humankind has exclusively taken outside of Jesus Christ, is just open rebellion. St. Paul says as much in the first chapter of Romans when he says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. There's the connection to Genesis in the things that have been made. So they, Paul says, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their flesh, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. When Paul says that in sin, people worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, he's saying that they took this poetic view of the world, seeing it as a thing they could shape to their own desires rather than submitting to the created order ordained by God. And Paul also reveals the darkness at the logical end of this kind of thinking, that you're totally on your own. God gave them up, he says, in the lusts of their hearts. So we see then just how first order and central an issue identity actually is. Because only one of these two views of the world, mimesis and poiesis, is even capable of acknowledging that there is a God. Now, that's not to say that every person who takes a mimetic view is a Christian, or even a theist, far from it. But it is to say that a Christian cannot take a poietic view of the world. We cannot say that we give meaning to the world however we want to. Because the poetic view is at its heart a godless one. That is, in it there is literally no God. Each person becomes their own little God, deciding for themselves the meaning of things in the world that they inhabit. Thus, the poetic view is not simply problematic, but actually heretical. Indeed, the very sin of Adam and Eve, and must be exposed and countered in the world, and to the extent that it's found in the church, exposed and rooted out. But it is certainly true that as descendants of Adam and Eve, we all have this poetic tendency. This is what we want to do. And in recent years, it has become the societal norm. 
And once you know what to look for, it's actually pretty easy to see in yourself and in our society simply by observing the changes in the normal way of thinking about things. In his book, Carl Truman uses the concept of the expressive self to illustrate this idea. The expressive self is an outgrowth of a poetic view. When you are the definer of things, everything in your life takes on its significance based on its relationship to you, and especially how you feel about it. To illustrate this idea, Truman, who is a professor at a Christian college, uses the example of job satisfaction. He suspects, he writes, that his grandfather, were he to be asked if he was satisfied with his job, may not have even understood the question. And if he did understand it, he would have answered in terms of whether or not his work gave him the money to put food on his family's table and shoes on his children's feet. Truman acknowledges that his own instinct, however, just two generations later, is to talk about the pleasure that teaching gives him, about the sense of personal fulfillment he feels when a student grasps a new idea and so on. So for previous generations, satisfaction was empirical. It was outwardly directed, unrelated to a person's particular psychological state. But today, the issue of feeling is central. Again, this is a poetic view cropping up subconsciously in the mind and heart of a firmly biblically orthodox scholar, a teacher at a Christian college. He recognizes that his first instinct is to look within himself to understand the world. It has meaning primarily in relation to him. And as he writes, that's evidence of a problem, a shift from a mimetic view where you seek to understand the world based on its creator to a poetic one where you give the world its meaning. Now we should be clear here, it's too simple and way too late for me to stand up here and say something like, thou shalt not have a poetic view of the world. Since the fall, that is our natural state. Like Adam and Eve, we are prone to attempt to wrest control for definition and therefore self-definition away from God and keep it for ourselves. But as Christians, we need to recognize that tendency, call it the sin that it is, confess it, and remember the truth that God is the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, 1. You are not the creator, you are a creature. You do not define yourself, you are defined by the one who made you. So let's take a moment now to look at how the Bible, that is the word of God, defines you. What it says about your identity. And we'll find, I think, that it says two things. First, the Bible talks a lot about how you might be defined. How you might have been defined once. And then it talks about how you are now defined in Christ, how you are defined in and on account of him. Now, we might have been defined, the Bible suggests, by our successes, by our struggles, or by our socio-political location. Now, it says, we are defined simply as people who were once dead in trespasses and sins and who are now alive in Christ Jesus. That's what I want to spend the rest of our time looking at this morning. These identities 
as the Bible lays them out. So first, we are tempted to identify ourselves by our successes. You probably readily recognize this tendency. You're somebody, say, who went to that college, or who drives that kind of car, or who married that girl, or has achieved this list of accomplishments. You're someone who people look up to, someone people can trust. You're someone that other people want to be. That's who you are. And this is a very common way for people to identify themselves, whether or not they would say so out loud. They're thinking this in their heads and in their hearts. The Bible addresses identity by accomplishment directly in Philippians chapter 3, when St. Paul suggests that his accomplishments are better than anyone else's, and yet still not worth anything at all. This is what Paul writes If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I have the most successes, he says. And yet Paul does not allow these successes to define him. But whatever gain I had, he continues, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And here's the key phrase, and be found in him. Paul founds his identity now on Jesus. He is nothing, he claims, other than a creature found in Christ. Now, conversely, we are sometimes, though this can seem counterintuitive, we are sometimes tempted to identify ourselves by our struggles. You're from a place on which other people look down, perhaps. You had to fight for every inch you've gained. No one ever gave you anything for free. In fact, they oppressed you, and maybe your ancestors too. That's who you are. This kind of identifying is sometimes seen in people deeply enmeshed in contemporary social justice movements. St. Paul addresses identity by suffering too. Here he is writing in 2 Corinthians 12. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. And of course, Paul is a man who is beaten, shipwrecked, imprisoned on multiple occasions, and eventually killed. I want to say a word here about Paul's thorn, this great mystery of Paul's thorn. But here's the thing about the thorn. Paul mentions it here in 2 Corinthians 12 and never talks about it again. And he must, I think, have pretty much never talked about it to anyone because there's not even really any church tradition that's grown up around it. No one knows what it was that Paul begged God to relieve him of. 
because Paul apparently never talked about it. In other words, he refused to be defined by it. He would not allow his greatest suffering to be his identity. As he says in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, Paul founds his identity on Jesus and nowhere else. He is nothing other than a man who cannot be separated from the love of Christ. So Paul refuses to be identified by his greatest successes and refuses to be identified by his greatest struggle. What about his socio-political location? This is the most common identifier that you'll hear in the year 2023 on the news. For instance, when a crime is committed, the first thing anybody wants to know is what the so-called identity markers are of the people involved. Not their names. They want to know their genders, their race, their religion, their sexuality. And the world has a lot of identities on offer. We have gender identities. Was it a man? Was it a woman? We have racial identities. Was the person black, white, Hispanic? We have sexual identities, gay or straight. The term intersectionality, a term coined by legal scholar and activist Kimberly Crenshaw in the early 90s, has gained prominence. The idea that you are the sum of your social and political identities. You are the place at which they all intersect, right? You might be a short Asian woman or a tall black man, but these, there are many more identities than that, right? Height, race, and sex are only three. We must include sexual orientation, class, religion, disability, physical appearance, and on and on and on. You are totally in this system defined. Your identity is the sum of those intersections. Now, St. Paul addressed his own socio-political location a little bit in Philippians 3 when he talks about how perfectly Jewish he is, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. But remember that he rejects all that in favor of being identified with Christ. That he rejects our intersectional approach to self-definition too. Man or woman, white or black, gay or straight, rich or poor, etc., on into infinity. Listen to him in Galatians chapter 3. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The good news of Jesus Christ is a universal leveler. Your ethnic, socioeconomic, gender identities, any particular identities are all covered over, made invisible by the covering and saving blood of Jesus Christ. Paul, again, founds his identity on nothing other than Jesus. He says he is one with every other believer, no matter who they are, in Christ Jesus. So the Bible only really allows for a single identity marker. 
the most profound one you can imagine. Almighty God made flesh in Jesus Christ. What God's word teaches us is simple, that the world with all of these identities is confused and wrong. There are really only two identities on offer, dead in trespasses and sins or alive in Christ. That's it, dead or alive. We were, as St. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, dead due to sin. That's bad news. But it's the only diagnosis profound enough to be true. Not lame, not sick, not successful or struggling, not black or white, not straight or gay, dead. And when Paul describes the human condition in Romans, being unable to do the things you want to do and compelled to do the things you hate, he doesn't describe that as paralysis or sickness. He calls it death. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the diagnosis for which Jesus' death and resurrection is the appropriate prescription. We are dead as a doornail in sin and given new and joyful life on account of Jesus Christ. That's the transition that faith in Jesus describes, death to new life. And newly alive in Christ is the only identity that matters. So as we get ready to wrap up, let's take a practical real-life example here in the last few minutes of this to see how this thinking works itself out in the real world. The ultimate example of taking a poietic view of the world is what is called autopoiesis. That is, not only presuming to give meaning to the world around you, like my piano illustration from earlier, but to be the one who gives meaning to yourself. Autopoiesis. To define yourself. Now, all sinners attempt to do this, you and me included, but perhaps the most obvious and in-your-face example of autopoiesis, self-creation, is that of the so-called transgender person. Peter Jones, a professor of New Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary in California, has written an article called Androgyny, the Pagan Sexual Ideal, and in it he suggests that the breakdown of the binary between men and women i.e. transgenderism, is an obvious and logical outworking of the breaking down of the first binary, that of the distinction between humankind and God. We're right back to the garden, right? Humankind trying to be gods. This is what poiesis does. And the autopoiesis of transgenderism is a vivid illustration of it, of putting oneself on the throne in the place of God and wresting the creative enterprise away from him and taking it on for oneself. In 2015, former Olympic gold medalist and television personality Bruce Jenner announced to the world that he was actually a woman. So let's take just a moment to track how the story of someone like Bruce Jenner can illustrate the broken worldview against which we must preach, the bad news into which we must proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. So for someone like Jenner, the underlying assumption of life is that objective truths cannot exist. He takes a poetic view of the world, right? Not a mimetic one. Biology even is not determinative of truth. Rather, as Truman suggests, Jenner is an expressive self. The feelings he has are what determines the meaning of the world around him. 
He felt unhappy and uncomfortable as a man and saw the world and himself poetically as raw material that could be molded to suit those feelings. He felt like a woman and so engaged in the surgeries and hormonal treatments necessary to change his world and himself into a form that suited his feelings. And the proof that Jenner's feelings were the ultimate law at play here is in the pudding. In his coming out Vanity Fair photo shoot, which I'm sure you've all seen, Jenner is seen with a white dress, flowing hair, and bright lipstick. Ironically, Caitlyn Jenner is exactly what a man might feel an ideal woman would look like. Notice another irony, that there's no room for God in Jenner's decision to self-create. But Jenner is seeking something that only God can give. He is struggling desperately for redemption. But since he has assumed the role of creator, he must fill the role of savior too. This is terribly bad news. There is no amount of hormone therapy or number of restructive surgeries that can save the sin-sick soul. Only Jesus can save. And Jesus, well, Jesus is the word of God who was with God in the beginning when God created. Nothing was made, says John in the prologue to his gospel, that was not made through Jesus Christ. The good news that we do not have to create ourselves, that we are who God calls us in Christ, is rejected by those who seek to define themselves, either explicitly like Bruce Jenner or implicitly like the rest of the world. Everyone who would define themselves in similar ways by their successes, by their struggles, by their genders, races, or any other thing, any identity outside of Christ is not a Christian one and therefore must be confessed, repented of, and redeemed. Everything outside of Christ must be left on the cross. And the good news is that on account of Christ's finished work there, it actually is left at the cross. Every identity in terms of success, every identity in terms of struggle or in terms of socio-political location is gone. As Paul says so clearly in 2 Corinthians 5, Verses 16 and 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In light of this good news, we can set down our aspirations to self-create and bask in the new life that we've been given in Jesus. Now, we all fail at this basking, of course. We all fall back again and again into the desire to self-create. But what we can do, as I said, is confess regularly. That's why we do it every single week in church. Repent wholeheartedly and throw ourselves once again on the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners who identifies us in the most simple way. He calls us his own. Let's pray together. Dear God, remind us always that we are yours. Tear down all the other ways in which we might identify ourselves and secure us in the knowledge that when you look at us, 
you see your perfectly righteous son. Help us to be compassionate with those who are struggling with the security of their identity. Give us good news to proclaim. We ask all of this in your son, our savior, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks as always for listening to Stand Firm this week. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us. Rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Lord willing, we'll be back with a regular show next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Standing firm.